Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, Karen Kodrowski, professor of political science, also director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. Karen, welcome to you. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Jonathan Hasid, uh, Karen's colleague there at ISU, joining us as well, Associate Professor of Political Science. Jonathan, good to have you on board. Always great to be back, Ben. And uh, great to have everyone listening on board. Uh, you know, uh, longtime River to River politics listeners, uh, we've experienced a number of historic days together going back uh, over a decade, uh, many <laughs> presidential elections, uh, and many points of interest, uh, historic moments in between. This is another one of those that we experienced yesterday that we'll be able to talk about today. If you'd like to join us to talk about the first time in U.S. history, the House Speaker, a House Speaker has been ousted from uh, the U.S. House. Join us with your questions, one 780 River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Hopefully we'll get to a few other uh, political headlines uh, for analysis um, from Karen and Jonathan a little bit later in the hour. But, of course, the bulk of our focus on the history that took place yesterday when eight Republicans, led by Florida's Matt Gates uh, and 208 Democrats, voted to remove Kevin McCarthy, all four of Iowa's House members. They're all Republicans. Miller Meeks, Henson, Nunn. And Feenstra voted in support of McCarthy. And uh, far-right Republicans, though, um, prevailed. They were angry that McCarthy passed legislation with Democrats to avert a government shutdown last week. McCarthy says he won't run again. Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, is the acting speaker. Let's hear uh, some uh, audio from the main players uh, in this drama on the House floor yesterday. Representative Matt Gates of Florida who, again, led the small faction of hardline Republicans, argued McCarthy failed in reducing government spending. We have to break the cycle. We have to break the fever. And I would hope, truly, that the reforms that we are fighting for are reforms that would last and be embraced and that would democratize power in this institution beyond the privileged few who back us up against shutdown politics and, and Christmases and deadlines in order to achieve their objectives. Mr. Speaker, high inflation is on the verge of bankrupting American families. Our economy is breaking in half. A typical American family can't afford to buy a house in 99% of U.S. counties. Inflation is stealing more than $700 a month from working Americans, nearly $9,000 a year. Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he has failed to take a stand where it matters. So if he won't, I will. Kevin McCarthy, um, minutes after becoming former Speaker of the U.S. House, spoke to reporters after the historic uh, vote. He expressed fears of a broken system and disappointment in Democrats who voted with eight hardline conservatives to oust him. Here's a bit of what he had to say. My fear is the institution fell today. Because you can't do the job if eight people... You have 94% of, or 96% of your entire conference, but eight people can partner with the whole other side. How do you govern? You all know Matt Gates. 
You know it was personal. It had nothing to do about spending. It had nothing to do about everything he accused somebody of he was doing. It all was about getting attention from you. I mean, we're getting email fundraisers from him as he's doing it. Join in quickly. That's not governing. That's not becoming of a member of Congress. Join us with your questions, one 780 9100 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Kevin McCarthy, former Speaker of the House, uh, preceded by Matt Gates. Um, uh, let's get initial thoughts. Throw the door wide open for you first, Karen Kodrowski. So much to discuss here and to pick apart, but uh, wide open for you. What do, where do you want to jump in? Well, I think that one of the first things that we can see is that Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy Pelosi. Um, Nancy Pelosi actually uh, faced a number of surrogate and direct challenges to her leadership as early as like 2006. And, uh, And she managed to remain in power in, in because she did several things that just McCarthy did not do. So number one is that first of all, she she allowed people within the conference to to sort of you know say whatever they wanted, but then in the end, she she made the point of getting them behind uh, the legislation, uh, whatever the the majority was. Number two <clears throat> is that she was really able to sort of pick off her um, potential opponents, kind of one by one by promising them various perks of office. Number three, she never would have agreed to a motion to vacate based on on one person. Now, by contrast, what have we seen with the Republicans? Um, Their family fights are sort of out there in the open. (laughs) It's all been very public. Um, It was in January, and it was in this iteration. Um, Secondly, um, you know, I think that that McCarthy, you know, was willing to work with the far right in his caucus uh, for quite some time to the point where he actually – you know, he um, alienated any Democrats who might have been willing to support his candidacy for speakership on this motion to vacate simply, you know, for stability and the ability to be able to continue governing. Um, But also, I think it just shows that it's really hard to be the majority party when you have such a slender majority. And, you know, but even, you know, when Pelosi had a majority of, say, seven Democrats, she kept them in line and managed to get stuff done. Um, And McCarthy just didn't have that skill level. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, his seed, your thoughts. Uh, One thing to note is that I don't think, uh, you know, the eight who voted, uh, I should say the eight Republican uh, congresspersons who voted to oust McCarthy as speaker, they don't really have an agenda. They're essentially nihilists. Uh, Virtually none of them have proposed or had any legislation passed. Matt Gaetz, of course, the the ringleader, has been in Congress since 2015, uh, has never successfully passed a single piece of legislation. Uh, Similarly, people like Ken Buck have been in office uh, for quite a while, since 2015 in his case, also never successfully sponsored a single piece of legislation. Most of the others have done things like rename post offices and and, and veterans clinics. Um, These are not serious legislators. That's not what uh, drives them. You know, these are people that get 
uh, social media support. Uh, they raise money. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's performative uh, outrage, basically. And then in turn, I mean, essentially being in Congress isn't their job uh, as, as they see it. They see it as their job is to uh, make lots of noise and, and raise money and appear on social media and Fox News a lot, and uh, they're not really interested in, in governing, right? The idea that, that these eight threw McCarthy out because of a budget deal with Democrats is, I think, I think ridiculous. Uh, it's, it, this was inevitable. McCarthy was a doomed speaker from, from January, from his 15 votes to get into office. Uh, by by uh, giving uh, the, you know, one person the power to overthrow him, he made this outcome inevitable. Um, and so now we have you know, uh, th- these eight uh, uh, Republican Congress people who represent 1.8 percent of the American population have essentially thrown the entire uh, system into disarray. And I don't know. It seems to me, you know, there are really only two ways out here. Uh, one is that uh, the Republicans coalesce around another consensus candidate. As we saw in January, that's going to be exceedingly difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other option is that we're going to move to something we haven't really seen in the U.S. before, which is a parliamentary style coalition government, you know, perhaps where you get uh, minority. I mean, excuse me, where you get um, uh, moderate Republicans working with uh, a majority of the Democratic caucus to have some sort of caretaker administration that is uh, some sort of parliamentary coalition. You know, we haven't seen that before in the United States. That is, uh, that is work. That is really mind bending, considering our hyper partisan politics. Uh, Jonathan here, you know, House Democrats plan to nominate uh, nominate uh, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, the Democrat of New York, minority leader to the speakership. Um, Okay, you're not proposing that might happen. But to to have something unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. But but to have something, I mean, just as earth shattering for us here in the United States would be something uh, along the lines of of what we see in our our, our European democracies. Uh, Karen, what do you think about that prospect? Well, I think it would have been more possible 25 years ago if the situation were playing out then. The problem with that potential scenario is that there are practically no legislators left in the middle. Um, so to be able to, you know, build bridges between moderates is that there just aren't very many of them in either party. There is the small problem solvers caucus, uh, which is a bipartisan caucus of um, sort of moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans who are committed to working in a bipartisan fashion. And um, the the issue was is that the Republican members of the Problem Solvers were attempting to get the Democratic members of the Problem Solvers Caucus to support McCarthy as a way of uh, avoiding, you know, this this chaos. And um, they didn't do it. So now there is dissension within the Problem Solvers Caucus. And and there's been some rumors that the Republican members of the Problem Solvers Caucus are going to to, um, resign en masse. So, you know, until we would be able to get past that kind of personal antipathy, not to mention all the other types of personal antipathy, um, that, you know, I, I don't see a coalition style of government happening. Um, but we got a week. A lot can happen in a week. And on, on top of that, you know, there's there's just got to be something that breaks this log, log jam. Um, you know, the, the far right wing, it, you know, is the self-styled Freedom Caucus. This Freedom Caucus grew out of the Tea Party movement that came up in the Obama administration. And these folks have really been less focused on governing and more focused on sort of burning everything down. I mean, Mark yeah, Meadows was yeah. a member of this group. So but, is Jim Jordan, who's now... Um, 
declared that he wants to run for speaker. Mick Mulvaney was. And, um, you know, right now they've done a pretty darn good job of burning everything down. Yeah, yeah we've got to go to break here. But, you know, I'm just reading this morning, uh, Matt Gates in Florida, in his district, uh, he was reelected by 30-plus point margin. Uh, and, um, you know, Certainly has his critics there, but, uh, you know, he is he can't be accused of not representing his constituents. Perhaps he can. I'm not sure. When we come back, we'll chew more over this historic event in the U.S. House yesterday. The thoughts of Karen Kadrowski and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. Perhaps your thoughts as well. Your question for our two political scientists, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. I'm Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Glad you're on board on this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Jonathan Hasid and Karen Kondrowski, our two political scientists from Iowa State University. Join us with your questions about the battle within the U.S. House among Republicans, where we go from here in this uncharted territory of uh, American politics never before happened in U.S. history. I think there was one vote to vacate, uh, but never before has a U.S. House speaker been ousted in this way. Yesterday, eight Republicans, led by Matt Gates of Florida, plus all of the Democrats, 208, voted to remove Kevin McCarthy, all four of Iowa's House members, all Republicans voting in support of McCarthy and defending him on the floor before that vote. And we'll hear uh, some of their comments a little bit later in the program. Let's go to uh, our first question. Brannon um, put his um, political analyst hat on and is asking this question of you, Karen and Jonathan. By voting against McCarthy, didn't the Democrats just reward and further empower the super conservative few Republicans? Jonathan. How about you on that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could you could argue that that's the case. I think, um, you know, Democrats weren't going to do this for free, right? And McCarthy offered them nothing. And so it seems to me that, uh, you know, with McCarthy offering Democrats nothing, he's going to get nothing from them in return. I mean, that's how politics works. Uh, I, I, I think... I mean, Democrats arguably are enabling the extremist wing of the GOP with this. But on the other hand, they have no obligation to save the Republican Party from itself. Uh, what we're seeing is essentially the slow motion crack up of the GOP. You know, we, we, right now we basically have three parties in the U.S. Congress. We have Democrats, we have Republicans, and then we've got this MAGA caucus that just seems to want to burn everything down. Um, and, you know, society is going to have to figure out a way to govern around these people. Um, and you know, that the Democrats and Republicans are ultimately going to have to come together to do that. I don't know if that will happen, but that's mm-hmm. what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Karen, you agree um, hardline um, Republicans emboldened by uh, this their success here? 
in bringing down the speaker? Well, they're probably, yeah, they're probably emboldened because they realize that they have more in their, more numbers in their caucus to be able to swing the majority, right? Because, you know, there's only a four or five vote majority for those that are at least nominally Republican. I would also add that um, with almost no exceptions, um, the one of the few, like, take it to the bank, straight party line votes that you can count on is a vote for the speaker. Um, you you know, so and that's what essentially this was, right? Um, and um, and so the the Democrats who or any members of any party who would deviate from that risk, you know, expulsion from the caucus, um, or they risk, you know, losing, you know, good committee positions. They risk losing good office space or other perks, and then they also risk um, seeing the uh, their pet projects being brought up to the floor because the speaker um, or the major, you know, minority leader um, helps to set the agenda for the the body. So not only did they have no good incentives to bail out McCarthy, but they also had significant disincentives to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the antipathy that's going on between the two parties is that, you know, the Democrats are fully aware that the Republicans are, you know, engaged in in a, something of a civil war. And, you know, they would just as soon have the American public see that so that, you know, it becomes clear what the American public would be voting for if they vote for the GOP. Right. Those making campaign ads, uh, Karen, uh, their, their gears are running in high high speed, right, uh, for the next election, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, all these members are up for re-election. And, um, and most of them are in, you know, gerrymandered, relatively safe seats, where the only thing that they really have to worry about is facing a primary challenge from somebody who's to the right of them, if they're Republicans, or to the left of them, if they were Democrats. So imagine a Democrat in an otherwise safe seat seat, voting for McCarthy, and then facing a challenger saying, you're, you know, you're yeah. a traitor to the party and to your district yeah. because you voted for a Republican uh, for the speakership. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's hear some voices from uh, our elected um, House members here in Iowa uh, since the last last election, all of whom are uh, Republicans. Uh, Iowa's new uh, 2nd Congressional District. That's now in the northeast corner. Used to be the first up there. I'm still getting used to it. The 2nd Congressional District, uh, represented by Ashley Hinson, spoke on the floor uh, of the House yesterday in support of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, during her comments, the, the freshman congresswoman recalled the piece of advice McCarthy had given her. One of the most valuable pieces of advice that I received was from Kevin McCarthy when I got here to D.C. He told me to Separate the signal from the noise. The noise is those who are causing chaos for their own personal benefit while ignoring the needs of their constituents and this country, grinding our work here to a halt. The signal is the many accomplishments that we've delivered for the American people with Speaker McCarthy at the helm. The signal is the failures coming out of the White House time and time again. The signal is the work that we must do today and going forward to save our country for my kids and yours. Okay, let's slide down to Iowa's first district representative, Marionette Miller Meeks, uh, in the um, uh, south uh, southeast uh, corner of the state, appearing on Newsmax yesterday as well, calling Gates' move to oust the speaker selfish. 
Uh, Gates' move is a selfish move. It did nothing to help people. It's not doing anything to help to solve our debt. We control one half of one third of government. We do not control the Senate and we do not control the White House. He would not have gotten any better deal, any better budget cuts, um, or any better negotiations. He is aware that he would not have been able to do that. And what's happening right now? Representative Gates and others are online fundraising off of this, and the Democrats are online fundraising off of this. So they're uh, having a very good time. Meanwhile, the rest of us are trying to decide who do we vote for speaker, where do we go from here, and then how do we get back on track on doing the job of the American people. Okay, Jonathan, you first. Talk about the position of the, uh, let's just say, mainstream GOP, those who do not belong to the the faction uh, that uh, carried out uh, this um, ousting of the speaker. Well, they're in a tough position. Um, you know, this uh, a lot of the moves of the these eight uh, renegades seem to be very popular with huge chunks of the Republican base, the sort of MAGA wing of the Republican Party. And so, I mean, I'm I'm delighted that uh, mainstream Republicans are are standing up. Uh, but um, you know, as as Karen said, you know, if they go too far in this direction, they're likely to face uh, primary challenge from the right, uh, which would of course potentially unseat them. And so. Um, you know, this is, uh, I don't know, things, things are very strange. And um, I think, uh, I mean, fun, fundamentally, the, the big part of the problem is that there's a lot of people in the Republican base who aren't interested in governing. Governing requires making compromise. It requires mm-hmm. politics, requires give and take. And um, there are extremists, of course, in both parties, but the Republican extremists are a much larger portion of the caucus, and, and they're simply not interested in politics. Politics meaning compromise. Politics meaning, you know, the give and take of, of uh, negotiations. They want things done their way. And the fundamental problem is that, you know, they represent a, a small minority of the country and they simply can't dictate to everybody else in the way that they would like. Uh, and this really puts mainstream Republicans in a massive bind. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I mean, for the countries, for the sake of the country and the Republican Party, I hope that the GOP can fix itself. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the question of what happens next. Um, as I understand it, uh, Jonathan and Karen, until someone can win 218 votes or more, the House will continue to hold elections in an ongoing speaker's uh, race. Um, uh, we have um, you know, names thrown out. Of course, the acting speaker, Patrick McHenry, the Republican from North Carolina, but also other names, uh, Steve Scalise of Louisiana, Tom Enner of, Emmer of Minnesota, um, Elise Stefanik uh, of the, um, what is she from? New York, I think. Uh, she's uh, And also uh, Tom Cole of Oklahoma, one of the names being uh, mentioned here. Uh, Karen, what, what should we expect in the next few days? And comment on any of those names or others? Or is it just a big question mark out there for at the, at the, us at the, this point? Well, I think it's a, it's a big question mark. And one of the problems that I think has afflicted both the Democratic and the Republican parties in recent years is that the leadership has not been very good about training successors. Now, for a long time on the Democratic side, you sort of saw a, a leadership ladder, you know, whipped to leader, to speaker, Um, but those days are long gone. And so since there was no sort of heir apparent, there was no clear person, this means that now there's going to be a lot of jockeying. And um, of those people that you have mentioned, they really represent 
the two factions of the Republican Party, with Jordan being in the Freedom Caucus and Stefanik being a, a Trump acolyte, and sort of Cole and Emmer um, being really what accounts for the mainstream. So they're they're conservative, but they also recognize what it's going to take to govern. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard in our t- top of the hour news, uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader there in the other chamber, the Senate, uh, Jonathan saying, uh, you know, uh, take this as a warning, <laughs> Republicans. Each of the predecessors of Kevin McCarthy got burned by the far right. Is that a lesson to take away from this uh, when choosing uh, the next speaker? I mean, it's a partisan statement, but I mean, is it a real lesson here? As <laughs> Would you take that it's, as a lesson? Uh, I mean, it's a lesson to not take the job, I think. You know, the I mean, the, the last number of Republican speakers have really, really struggled with this caucus. I mean, John Boehner ultimately was forced out. And of course, as we just saw what happened to Kevin McCarthy, I mean, the last really effective Republican speaker of the House probably was Dennis Hastert, who I think is now out of prison. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the fundamental problem is that, uh, you know, this is uh, this is a party that a, a huge numbers of it just simply don't want to govern. Yeah. Uh, and when they don't want to govern, this is what you get. Yeah. And, and Jonathan, I mean, this means that other legislative business until this is settled, for the most part, it just grinds to a halt in the House. That's yeah. right. I, I mean, thank, thankfully, the continuing resolution was passed. But, you know, yeah. at some point, the, you know, 45 days, the money will run out. If there's not a speaker by then, then we'll have a, 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 even more unusual government shutdown than we've had in the past, where not only is the government shut down, but there isn't even a speaker of the House to right, sort right. of call people back in to, to introduce spending legislation. Yeah, what, happened, Karen, what happens, Karen, when this CR expires? Now we're going to be counting down the days here until a, a real potential of another government, right. of, of a government shutdown, right? we're losing a week. Right. So instead of really having 45 days to figure this out, it's more like we're going to have, you know, 38 days or so uh, because we're losing a week. And that's pushing things really close to the Thanksgiving and the Christmas holidays. And, you know, as as Donald Trump discovered during that government shutdown, which happened over the Christmas holidays, is that that's really bad optics. And there has not been a single time that the government has gone into a a shutdown in some sort of showdown between Democrats and and Republicans, where the Republicans have not been blamed. Um, So now the the Democrats can kind of sit back and say, well, we'll just watch them and see what they come up with. (laughs) And uh, because in a sense, they they hold a lot of the cards. Right. You know, if it's not a bipartisan compromise, if it doesn't, you know, um, include Democratic priorities, it's not going to get through the Senate and the president could veto it. So, you know, the Republicans have got to figure out what they want to do. Um, And I think Marionette Miller Meeks really, you know, had a good analysis of exactly the situation. You know, if you're not going to talk to Democrats, then nothing, I mean, nothing will get done and at enormous human cost. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let's zoom out We've got a few minutes before we have to take a break, and we do want to move on to a touch, at least briefly, on a number of other uh, political news items uh, this hour. But before we do, I'd ask you both, Karen and Jonathan, to zoom out here. Um, um, what are the implications for that you see for the primary season going into a, um, a general election year, uh, the campaign there? Uh, of course, Iowa lead off for the GOP um, uh, for the GOP 
caucus here in Iowa. Then we have the 2024 election uh, just over a year ago. Uh, Jonathan, uh, what, do, what do you see there? Any implications for this, or will it be a, a faded memory by the time 2024 rolls around? Possibly. Well, I, I mean, I hope it'll be a faded memory. You know, it's, I, I don't know how we get out of this one uh, with leaving Congress intact as an institution. Uh, and so, I mean, the you know, the, the, the dynamics of governing have changed so much, uh, you know, with, with gerrymandered seats making virtually every seat in Congress a safe seat, uh, with uh, the incentives of social media extremism provide is that, uh, you know, legislatures, many are no longer rewarded for being legislators. And so, um, you know, we're, we're in a tough spot. I mean, it's uh, the... You know, democracy doesn't look good when these kind of thing happens. I, I will also say that it, it, it appears very much to me that the GOP is coming apart. Um, it, at, at some point, I think, you know, the Whigs didn't make it as a political party either, right? Political parties don't fail all that often, but they do fail every once in a while. Uh, and uh, it, it, it seems likely that, that that's happening now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fundamentally, you have, as I said, people who don't want to govern. And, um, you know, they're trying to work with people who do want to govern. And this is the, these are two fundamentally irreconcilable views of what the Republican Party should be. There's simply no way to put them back together. And, and you know, the Trump dynamic makes the whole thing more vicious and worse. And so I, I would not be at all surprised if uh, we're, we're in the middle of a major political realignment, as yeah. happens in the U.S. every uh, all 50 years or so. Karen, what do you see when you zoom out that 30,000-foot view? Yeah, I don't think this is going to have much of a big um uh, impact on the Iowa caucuses or on the presidential primaries um, because, you know, none of the people who are running for president on the Republican side are in the House of Representatives and have any part of this um, drama at all. In fact, most of them are governors or are not currently in office. The only one who's a sitting legislator is Tim Scott. Um, and, and moreover, they're not debating against Biden directly. And even Biden, you know, he, you know, he can say, I, I can't veto anything until something ends up on my desk, right? So if, you know, the House of Representatives is dysfunctional, um, then, you know, I'm that that's that's long before it even gets to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Jonathan is right that, that we could be at a very pivotal moment in um, American politics. Um, and again, I think we're also seeing just the, the fragility and the vulnerability of uh, the American democratic experiment and that maybe we've made it to nearly 250 years because we've been lucky, not because we've been good. Wow. What a statement, Karen. Uh, We have 30 seconds. Karen, what about Jonathan's comment about linking it to, uh, well, um, the the authoritarian inclinations of our politics, election denial, attacking the courts, attacking the media? A few seconds before. I think that all of that are factors that that play into the situation currently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's part of the the big picture here, too, for you, right, Karen? Yeah, exactly. Okay, we're going to take a short break and be right back. Uh, I think we'll leave that behind for the moment to get to a couple of other things. Uh, Of course, um, uh, Donald Trump yesterday ordered to stop talking about court staff in his fraud trial, which started this week. We'll ask Jonathan and Karen about that. Hunter Biden arraigned uh, this week as well on those three firearms charges in in Delaware. And also Gavin Newsom uh, selecting uh, a Democratic um, uh, senator uh, to replace uh, Feinstein. Um, We'll ask about that when we return. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Stay tuned. 
Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. We're back midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Jonathan Hasid and Karen Kadrowski of Iowa State University, our two political scientists, moving on from the top story, which we've been absorbing over the last 24 hours of the ousting of Kevin McCarthy for the first time a speaker in U.S. history uh, ousted. Uh, Let's move on. Uh, Plenty of other politics. We could talk for four or five hours. I'm quite confident we only have another 20, 20 or so minutes, though, less than that. Donald Trump has been ordered to stop talking about court staff in his fraud trial. A judge issuing a gag order yesterday in that civil trial in New York over alleged business fraud committed by the former president and his company. It came soon after uh, the former president posted about a court staffer on social media and included a photo. The judge warned of, quote, serious sanctions if the order was violated. Uh, Trump, of course, already spending a significant amount of his time outside the courtroom lambasting officials in the case. Uh, Jonathan, the the significance of this gag order, especially, of course, since uh, Donald Trump, the front runner by a long shot in the GOP race. Yeah, well, we'll see if he holds to the gag order. Obviously, you know, Donald Trump has the right to remain silent, but perhaps doesn't have the ability to do so. Uh, And so, you know, if he violates the gag order, I imagine that he'll be held in contempt. And uh, it would be ironic if his first stint in jail came as a result of a civil trial rather than a criminal one. More likely, actually, I think he'll probably just keep his mouth shut. Um, You know, he usually he flies close to the sun, but uh, he's often moderately careful about how he does it. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, as for the trial itself, I think it's it's important to note that these are not alleged fraud allegations anymore. They're now proven fraud allegations. The judge, uh, Arthur Engeron, has ruled against him uh, in a number of pretrial motions. And essentially now the trial is about the extent of damages. So the fraud is known. The fraud is established as a legal fact. Um, it's just a question of how much Trump will have to pay. Uh, just as a, a very interesting little side note. I, I, I once met the judge involved in this case many, many years ago, and he really? admonished me about something. And so I have <laughs> both I and the Trump lawyers have been admonished by the same New York judge. Oh, uh, you, you, uh, you're not saying, OK, we'll move on from there. <laughs> what it was about. <laughs> OK, I was late for something. I was a paralegal at the time and I was late. And so I got I got yelled at. Right. Uh, Karen, uh, the, the, of course, the, the New York Attorney General asking that, that Trump and his company pay $250 million. Your thoughts on the merits of this case and its, its impact on the Trump's uh, uh, candidacy? Uh, well, those are two very different questions. First of all, Jonathan's story is hilarious. Um, <laughs> just just noting that. Um, but in, in terms of the two hundred and fifty million dollars, um, that that would be a bite that even a billionaire might note. But um, if Trump is as wealthy as he states that he is, it would it would still not 
you know, absolutely undermine his um, status or his, you know, personal wealth. What I think is more damaging is that he's likely to see his businesses dismantled and he would lose, you know, his business licenses to be able to, you know, have, you know, his business presence in the state of New York and in the process, not just the fraud would be, uh, will be disclosed, but also his true value, um, which no doubt he has inflated. That's that's why, you know, the, that's what the judge has ruled. What would this have to do with his um, prospects for re-election? Little. <laughs> um, you know, with revelation after revelation, indictment after indictment, you know, and this is now the second or third tr- civil case um, that he has gone through yep. with the two related to E. Jean Carroll preceding it. Um, if there hasn't been an impact so far, there's not going to be an impact. And if he is tossed into jail on contempt charges, he is going to turn that into further evidence of his prosecution, of persecution yep. by a uh, biased judicial system. Yeah, he's, and he will be, you know, uh, spouting off about the First Amendment. Yeah, he's denied any wrongdoing and consistently dismissed all dismissed all allegations as politically driven. Witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt is is part of every uh, post. Uh, well, uh, whenever thing, anything's happened, witch hunt gets mentioned how many times? Let's move on here. Jonathan, to you on, on Hunter Biden, and then you, Karen, on, on uh, uh, Governor Newsom's choice uh, to uh, uh, act in, in, the, in the, the vacant position in the Senate here. Yesterday, uh, the president's son, Hunter Biden, pleading not guilty to three firearms charges at his arraignment in federal court in Delaware comes amid a high-profile legal battle uh, that has pitted the president's son against uh, his uh, president's Justice Department as this uh, presidential uh, campaign gets underway. Uh, How will this end? And also, we have to attach to this, of course, the House impeachment inquiry launched just a couple weeks ago. How, How will this shape the 2024 campaign? Well, the impeachment inquiry is dead now because there's no House Speaker and I guess not a functioning House. So for the moment, uh, President Biden can certainly rest easy on that. Uh, As for Hunter Biden, of course, um, you know, he seems like a pretty sleazy guy. Uh, One interesting thing that has been discussed is uh, he may potentially use the 2020 Supreme Court case uh, known as Bruin, uh, which struck down a number of New York gun laws uh, to actually go after the constitutionality of uh, uh, the crime that he's being charged with. So essentially he's being charged with falsifying a federal document because uh, when he went for a gun license, he did not check the box that said he was a current drug user. Um, And so that, uh, you know, that, that was enough uh, to get him charged. Uh, But the issue is that, um, you know, Bruin essentially says that no gun legislation is legal. And, And so there's a contradiction, right? Hunter Biden is being charged with a particular crime that arguably the Supreme Court has legalized. And so we're going to get some very strange bedfellows uh, fighting this. You know, a lot of, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of sort of gun rights people uh, on the right of the political spectrum are going to be, you know, supporting Hunter Biden's push to get his conviction dismissed because then that will eliminate gun restrictions uh, while also oddly helping Hunter Biden. And so, you know, there's all kinds of potential for weird bedfellows in this case. I I will also say that, you know, this is 
you know, it may well hurt uh, the president uh, in his reelection bid, right? Of course, he's associated with, um, you know, a, a guy who obviously has a, an unsavory reputation. And unlike Trump, I, you know, everything is baked in for Trump, right? Like, you know, if Trump is even convicted of a crime, the numbers aren't going to move very much just because the base knows who he is and likes who he is. Joe Biden um, at least has the uh, a longer term reputation of being, you know, clean and honest for a long time. He's known as one of the, the poorer senators. Uh, and so to the extent that the Republicans can link Hunter Biden to Joe Biden, then that's potentially going after one of Joe Biden's vulnerabilities, uh, you know, his honesty in a way that a, a vulnerability that Trump simply doesn't face. The final minutes with Jonathan Hasid and Karen Kadrowski of Iowa State University are two political scientists on this politics Wednesday. Uh, Karen, I want to preface this uh, next uh, bit of political news by saying, coincidentally, you are the co-author of a new book, uh, Walking the Gendered Type rope. And we certainly want to invite you for a separate discussion focused on the many aspects you bring out in that book. But uh, that is a preface here. Let's move to California. Of course, the Senate uh, is still in the control of the Democrats uh, at this point. Um, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom selecting LaFonza Butler, a Democratic strategist, advisor to Kamala Harris in 2020, the 2020 presidential campaign, to fill the Senate seat made vacant by the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, she's 44 years old, president of Emily's List, a longtime California labor leader. Um, and Newsom here fulfilled a pledge to appoint a black woman if that seat became open. Um, she was sworn in by Vice President Harris uh, yesterday, uh, became, became the third black woman ever to serve in the Senate, the first lesbian to represent California in, in that chamber. Uh, Karen, your thoughts on Newsom's selection and the very complicated politics surrounding that choice? Yeah, it was complicated. So Newsom had said earlier that he that if um, there was a vacancy in Feinstein's seat, um, that he would nominate a black woman, and he also said that he would nominate a placeholder. Now there's a a, a vigorous uh, Democratic primary going on in um, in California, and one of the three candidates is a black woman, Barbara Lee, who has represented the um, Oakland area for a couple of decades and is very well respected as a member of the House of Representatives. So if he was to remain neutral in the future primary race, he could not um, appoint Barbara Lee to the Senate. Um, so he picked uh, Senator Butler, um, who's a longtime Californian, and but she was currently living in Maryland, and that's where her uh, voter registration was. So I'm I'm sure she got that fixed um, so that she can claim residency in in California. Yeah. But I think you know, given that she's very young, um, this means that even if she doesn't run for Senate, um, that she is likely to be in line for some other kinds of political races in the future. I don't think we've seen the last. Of her. Um, and she's only the, the second out lesbian to serve in the U.S. Senate and the first black lesbian. So it's a, it's a very much a historic um, appointment, no matter how you look at it. And also the question for Butler is, will she 
try to keep the seat by running in next year's election. I, I don't think I've seen any news that she's committed. And Newsom says yeah, that's, a, that's she, up to she her, She hasn't right? said anything yet. Of course, it's only been a day. <laughs> she hasn't <laughs> said anything yet. But um, but even if she y- y- does serve as a placeholder, she's young. She would have had this experience along with her activism experience. Um, this would raise her profile. Um, I think that she would definitely be in a position to run for other office or to seek some sort of a point of position in the Biden administration. Yeah, well, what an interesting uh, race there, primary there. Barbara Lee, you mentioned, uh, but Representative Adam Schiff, uh, we saw his profile resin after those impeachment uh, uh, investigations. Uh, the other leading contender, Representative Katie Porter, uh, someone popular among progressives and women. Jonathan, uh, your thoughts on, on what's happening in California with this election? Um, I would expect that uh, Senator Butler will just be a placeholder. Of course, we don't know for sure. Um, But my my guess is that uh, Newsom picked her on the expectation and with the understanding, tacit or otherwise, that she would uh, be a placeholder and step down at the next election. Um, You know, Newsom wisely didn't want to get involved in this very, uh, it's going to be a vicious primary between as uh, Porter um, Schiff and, and Barbara Lee. And, you know, who, who knows how it's going to, I mean, there's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of ink spilled over this and a lot of fights inside the California party. Uh, and so, you know, Newsom got to, didn't, didn't tip his hand, right? If, I mean, if he'd appointed, say, Barbara Lee to the seat, who was also, of course, a black woman, um, then she just would have held the seat and then he would have been seen as like uh, tipping his hand in her favor. And so this way, Newsom got to avoid making a sticky political decision um, and uh, get to keep his hands clean for a little while. Mm -hmm. Let me toss in a comment that came in from Fred from uh, West Bend. Uh, He called to say he was very disappointed that a few Democrats didn't vote for McCarthy. He thinks it would have avoided some of this chaos and what's going to happen now is likely to be far worse. Of course, we don't know one day out, uh, less than sort of 24 hours less than 24 hours out, the degree of chaos, whether it's a few hours, a few days, or or longer than that. Before we go, uh, you know, it was last Wednesday night that we had the second presidential, uh, GOP presidential debate. Um, uh, notably, uh, Donald Trump, uh, none of those on stage at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in California. We had Doug Burgum, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott. Um, your observations of, uh, from that debate, Karen, start us off. Uh, without Donald Trump there and with the commanding lead in the, in the polls that he has, uh, I guess the significance of these b- debates is in question. Well, yes, they are in question. On the other hand, you know, we know how Donald Trump debates, and um, it would have taken what was a raucous debate and turned it into chaos. And what advantage of not having him attend is that we do get to learn quite a bit about the other candidates who are in the race. And I really thought that Nikki Haley has done extremely well in both of the debates. Um, She's had some great one-liners, but she also just really 
really um, is disciplined and and is informed on all the issues. So we didn't see any awkward pivots, like um, you know, from healthcare to immigration, like uh, Vice President Pence did, um, or you know, um, you know, in a, a couple of other cases. And um, and I I really thought that she did well. I also thought that Tim Tim Scott did fairly well, and and you know, kind of uh, stood up for himself, but also made a point of attacking um, and calling, you know, on the, you know, calling on the question, you know, calling on the carpet like Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, reminding him of some of the more inflammatory things that he had said earlier. I was also struck by the fact that people talked about Trump and uh, condemned him for not participating in the debate. Yeah. Jonathan, in the final minute or so, your takeaways from this second GOP debate. Uh, you know, it was it was noisy. It was raucous. Um, I think, uh, you know, echoing what Karen had said, I think uh, there's there's Nikki Haley seems to have real momentum now, perhaps Tim Scott. Right. Especially as Ron DeSantis clearly drops off. But ultimately, the debates are just not pushing the needle very much. The, the Republican nominee is going to be Donald Trump, uh, almost regardless of how many debates there are, you know, and unless through some unexpected and even miraculous event that a whole bunch of Republican candidates drop out and unite behind, say, Scott or Haley. Barring that, the debates, you know, are basically arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, you know, it's who gets to be in second and who gets to be in third place ultimately won't matter that much uh, if and when Trump sweeps the whole thing. Yeah, Jonathan, quickly, though, the, the legal woes, the president from many corners will not prevent him from being the nominee. That's right. Even a convicted criminal can run for office. Uh, Eugene Debs uh, ran for office as a socialist candidate in the 1920 election while he was jailed for speaking out against U.S. involvement in World War I. Part of his platform at the time was to pardon himself on those charges. Uh, he got something like 6% of the vote. Uh, and so there is even precedent for this, for people running from prison. Uh, the, I mean, the really tricky part will be if Trump is jailed in Georgia uh, for under the criminal charges he's facing there, because then no one can pardon him. And we would have the very unusual situation of a major party nominee running from state prison and potentially even governing the country from state prison. Um, and that, of course, would be <laughs> just totally bizarre. Yeah. Um, but barring that, barring Trump's essentially removal of the whole, you know, re removal of Trump by the legal system, uh, I, I don't see how anyone else is going to win the nomination. Okay. Well, to be continued, it's, it's sometimes hard just to contemplate we're actually talking about American politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Hasid, Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Karen Kadrowski, Professor of Political Science, Director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. Karen and Jonathan, we always enjoy your company. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Ben. Today's program produced by Danny Gear. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.